Welcome to Read All About It. Sad to say this is the final edition in our present series. Uh, as usual, we'll be talking about two reasonably contemporary books and a classic. I'm Yuri Vitacci. And I'm Marshall Moore. And our classic today is going to be The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. You'll hear a bit more about that later. But I'm going to start this week, and I'm going to start with a book called Defending Jacob by William Landay. Uh, now, this is um, an interesting book. It uh, spans a couple of genres. It spans the the uh, murder mystery genre, but it's also a, a legal thriller, a courtroom thriller. And uh, it spans them in a very interesting way. Um, we start off with a man called Andy Barber. He's a civil servant in the U.S. His uh, job title is assistant district attorney, and everything's fine. He's got a nice wife. He's got a nice kid. They live in a, a lovely little town called Newton, and uh, everything is hunky-dory. But it isn't because there's just been a murder. As, dis- as assistant district attorney, he has to investigate the, the murder in the town. Uh, but that's all right. You know, this is America and murders, murders happen. So he's, he's, uh, he's investigating the uh, a nice little giggle from you there, Marshall. <laughs> I was trying not to laugh. Yeah. I shouldn't laugh at that, but yes. I kind of have to. So uh, Andy Barber is uh, investigating a murder, but it's getting a bit uncomfortable because the murder is a kid at his child's school. So he thinks, oh, my, my poor child. My ch- it could have been my kid. So um, very upsetting. Uh, so um, how do you investigate a murder of a kid? You go to Facebook, see what the kid's talking about. So he goes to Facebook to see all these conversations, and there's a gazillion uh, messages on Facebook. All the girls are saying, you were lovely, I'll miss you forever. And the boys are saying sort of like hard, angry things, I'll get the guy who did this. And then there there are various accusations going around. And one kid says, um, it was Jake, I've seen his knife. And Jake is Andy's own child. Uh, a boy aged 14. So this makes Andy a bit uncomfortable, you know. I mean, kids are so ridiculous. How can they blame each other for, for a murder? Uh, but he does go and when his kid has gone to school, he goes and prowls around the kid's bedroom and finds a knife. Now, this may not actually mean anything because, like, you know, he's a 14-year-old boy. Boys like knives. They have pen knives. They they like to collect this sort of thing. Um you know, weapons, they, they come naturally and there's an aggression in the, in the male, so, so, so uh, we think. Um, so Andy decides this is awkward because the face, Facebook messages are saying that the kids, his kid has done it and has a knife and I've just found a knife. So Andy decides he'll throw away the knife just and confront the boy and say, look, you mustn't play with knives. Um, the author has a very... Uh, good line with dialogue and uh, the child speaks just like a child would sort of why have you got the knife I don't know Uh, why did you buy it Um, I'm not sure nothing no special reason and the kid just says um, um, I just thought it was cool it doesn't mean anything and the kid talks and talks but doesn't actually say anything very much like a, a real teenager so Andy decides okay it's just a silly silly coincidence but Andy himself has a secret and this is not one of those melodramatic thrillers where dark secrets come out. It's just something really awkward, which is that he had found out his father was a convict and he'd never mentioned this to his wife uh, because it just, you know, it just didn't come up in conversation. Oh, by the way, uh, I'm the son of a convict. Um, and he was, his father was in prison for killing another man. Um, 
Again, the conversation, the internal conversation is very realistic. Uh, the author, Lande, is very good at dialogue. And uh, the, the, uh, the lawyer, Andy Barber, says, um, the real reason is very mundane. It just never came up. There's no good time in the average day to announce to your wife that you're the son of a murderer. But what makes it interesting, of course, and you can see how the story is developing, all this happens in the, in the first, you know, 10% of the story. Uh, you can see what's happening is that these different factors are coming to play. There's something he's hidden from his wife. Uh, there's his son's knife, which is now thrown away, which may or may not be evidence. And it's turning into a, a wonderful legal drama right from the start. That sounds really fascinating. I, I want to ask if the kid did it, but I know that would be spoilery, so I probably shouldn't. Right. So did the kid do it? <laughs> in fact, one of the interesting things about this, uh, this book is that it's written in two time zones. So it starts off with a court transcript, and the guy in the dock is Andy himself being, uh, being questioned as a witness. And it's actually written as a transcript. Uh, and then... So it's sort of like, so you, you found out there was a murder in your town. Tell us about it. And he's talking about it. And then his mind drifts off to the first days of investigating the murder. And then it, it goes back to the transcript. And then you discovered your son had a knife. Why did you throw away the knife? And then it goes back to that actual period, you know, where he finds the knife. And he thinks, oh, my goodness, this could be misinterpreted. So you've got this uh, story happening on two time zones at once. Very clever structure. I think what makes this book special and why it won awards and stuck out from the pack uh, was the fact that it operates on multiple levels uh, as a courtroom drama, also as a murder mystery investigation, but also as a family drama because he's trying to deal with his son. He doesn't know if his son is an angel or a, or a, a demon. Um, he's He's got a lovely wife and there's something he hasn't told his wife uh, and he's just waiting for the moment to, to to say that. And he's got the politics of his department because, of course, um, once all this starts to come out, his department has to prosecute him. So all this inter-office politics starts to play and the uh, the guy who is set to prosecute the, the murder, investigate the murder, is Andy's own deputy who he trained. So we've got all these millions of layers all working at once and uh, the result... Uh, is a book that that won lots of awards as a as a new uh, new generation crime novel. So worth a good read. Was this a debut novel, or has he written anything else? I'm not familiar with him. Yeah, he's not a famous name yet, uh, William Landay. He was a Boston uh, lawyer. In fact, he was an assistant district attorney, just like the character in the book. He won the. Um, you know those uh, crime awards, Silver Dagger and the New Blood Award and all that? Um, he's written three novels, and I think all three of them have won uh, crime writing awards. So he's definitely a, a happening thing in that sense. Uh, although I'd, I, I, I don't know, uh, American lawyers probably earn more from, from lawyering than, uh, than writing books, even if they do win prizes. It seems like there are a lot of coincidences and layers and one thing that's come up a few times here on the show is the issue of contrivances. And how well does the author handle contrivance? Does it work or does it seem like it's just being pushed too hard to force the story to work when you can actually see the, the puppet strings and the seams showing? That's a good question. Whenever you have a, you know, a coincidence or two in a story, you know, one worries about this whole Victorian melodrama where 
where X is revealed to be the father of Y and so on. Um, fortunately, the, the author avoids that problem here, uh, simply because his characters are, are very realistic and coincidences do happen. And um, it's, it's interesting, if you avoid coincidences uh, entirely, then it's unrealistic. If you put in too many coincidences, then it's unrealistic. So you've got to just put in the right number. And uh, a good writer knows uh, what that number is. Um, the nice thing uh, here is that um, it we have all this circumstantial evidence. So uh, Andy's father was a murderer. His child may be involved in a murder or not. But we don't actually know the result until the end of the book because um, the two parallel storylines, the, the lawsuit, the, the court case, and the investigation are both... Um, are both storylines where the answer is hidden right at the end. So they work along in parallel. It's a complex structure that, uh, in this case, works very well. So for a reader who's into maybe Scott Turow or John Grisham or Richard North Patterson, how would you say this guy, whose name I keep forgetting, compares? Yeah, his name is William Landay. We're talking about his novel Defending Jacob. Um, it's a good question. Scott Turow, like uh, Landay, is a... Is, um, is a literary author. Uh, he's not. He's not Grisham, um, who just sort of charges along. It's very thoughtful with uh, very uh, detailed pen portraits. But like Scott Turow, there are lots of twists in it, so you can't tell what's happening. You can't guess what's going to happen next. And to me, that's really important. If you can always guess the next scene, then um, why read the book? You know, you just stop the book. So um, I think originality is absolutely key if you're doing a story structure that people have seen before. We've all seen a million uh, courtroom dramas. We've seen crime investigation stories. So you've got to have these uh, unknown twists. That's the sign of a, a good author. And uh, I think William Lando, in this case, uh, deserved his uh, awards he got because um, this is truly a, an original story. What would you say his writing style's like? It's um, upscale, so you do have to work a little at it. It's not uh, uh, sort of airport, airport holiday-type uh, reading. You actually get to know the characters. But I think crime writing generally is moving upscale. Um, it used to be very plastic, and formulaic, and uh, now, thank goodness, it isn't. And we've been talking about William Landay's Defending Jacob, a crime thriller. So I'll be talking about The Queen of the Night, the new one from Alexander Chee. Uh, this was published uh, about a year ago, and there was a lot of hoopla around the book when it was finally released. Chi's one of those writers who is really not very prolific. Uh, this is only his second book, and the first one came out 15 years ago and was quite successful. And I, over the years, there have been, I think there have even been press releases. The book was finally being published. The Queen of the Night's finally coming out. And then nothingness. And uh, I even read an interview with him where he was kind of laughing about the fact that he found a publishing contract that had a planned pub date 10 years ago. So this book has really been a long time coming. I think the good thing about it, and I'll get to the plot in a moment, is the fact that the time he put into it has really paid off because the volume of research is just mind-boggling, and you can tell pretty much from the first paragraph the amount of work he put into this book. The idea behind it 
It's a little complicated, um, and but in a way, it's not. There's a woman whose na- whose real name is withheld. So this young woman um, is entering a state ball in Second Empire. If I'm, it's complicated, so I might even be getting that detail wrong um, because it does jump around in time a bit and. So she's entering a ball, she's dressed fabulously, she's realizing something's a little bit off, and this starts this journey forward and backward in time in her life, and she's had this really extraordinary, crazy, uh, unbelievable events happening to her kind of life. And so we find that she's American from Minnesota, um, back basically not so much in the settler days, but you know 1800s, um, and her family is very modest. But what sets her apart is her remarkable singing voice, and so she almost loses it. And the risk of losing her singing voice is something that's an ongoing theme in the book. Um, as a girl, we don't find out her name. And we do know that she's from this fairly strict family. Uh, They're quite religious, and her mother believes that she has pride issues and forces her to um, tie her mouth shut with a ribbon over it to keep her from singing because it's prideful. Um, And then at one point, she simply goes mute for a period of time. Um, And then sometime later, she eventually gets her voice back. But the whole thing causes a lot of anxiety and strife inside the family. Um, one winter, a plague of some sort, a fever comes along and all of her family members, except for her, die. Which So we've already got these kind of bigger-than-life coincidences or contrivances, you could say, if they're, you know, contrivances if they were handled by someone less capable. Um, so she survives this. Of course, she has to bury all of them, sells the horse, and takes off for New York and quickly runs out of options and happens upon a traveling circus that's about to take off for France. They need a girl who can ride a horse. Ta-da, she's in the circus. And so this sets her off to Europe and gives her this kind of survival sensibility where she, you know, carries a knife, she can ride a horse, she can do all these crazy things. She can sing, even though she's still kind of, is she mute? Is she not mute? Is it real? Is she faking it? And her whole life becomes this succession of Baron Munchausen kind of craziness where she's in these perilous predicaments, but she manages to get out of them. She ends up in France. Uh, the reason she was trying to go to Europe in the first place is that her mother was from Switzerland originally, and so she's thinking the only surviving relatives she has will be in Lucerne. So she makes her way to Europe with the circus, thinking she'll eventually manage to get to Switzerland to join her mother's family there. Doesn't happen. And so one thing happens and then another, and she ends up befriending a prostitute in Paris who gets locked up, who then causes our heroine, who by this point has adopted the name Liliette Byrne. So even though it's not her real name, it'll do. And she adopts a couple of other fake names along the way, depending on her purposes. And so at one point, she even becomes a prostitute herself, working in a brothel in Paris, and learning the ways of the world. And 
during this time, she meets one of her clients, and they have this kind of twisted, unhealthy romance where is he stalking her? Is it a romance? It's uh, he he appears at several times in the book, um, and he's quasi villainish. He's not necessarily the bad guy all the time, but he's also really not the good guy either much of the time. Um, she does kill him in an interesting way. That's probably a spoiler. Um, in any event, it's it's the book is crazy. It's for what I mean. It works because Chi is such a talented writer. I mean, the man can put a sentence together, which for me is high praise. I like people who can do good sentences, and he can. Um, to use the word you just used, Nuri, upscale is something that you would and associate with this as well. It's all very much the opera. Um, the title of the book itself is a reference to the magic flute, and just he's he's just meticulous with the descriptions of the clothes, the descriptions of the surroundings, what people ate, what the weather was like, and you can tell he's really got a, like a decade of, of research in this book, but it's readable and it's just crazy and nuts in a good way. I'm very intrigued. I must admit, I've never heard of anything quite like it. I mean, how, how does he handle the fact that the protagonist doesn't have a real name? Does he just use the pronoun she all the time? Well, she does steal a name, so to speak. So she takes this name, Lilliet Byrne. And at one point, it's just a fake name that she's decided to use until she's got her life squared away and she can reclaim her own name. Um, and then at another point where she's been a prostitute, but she decides she wants to escape prostitution and escape from this man, um, she impersonates someone, manages to get herself arrested, and then in jail decides to change her name again. So she changes her identity several times throughout the course of the story, basically as a survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. So she's Lilliet for much of the book, but then it's also told in first person. It has a very unusual you know, plot mechanisms. Uh, is it a normal book structure? Is it easy read? Uh, you work for it because it's not linear. So th another thing that I've, I've almost left out, which is probably a major plot point because there's so much going on, is that she's early on, she's invited to have an important role in an opera that's been written. And it turns out the opera is actually about all of the crazy things in her life. It's about her. There are only a few people who could have known all the details. One of them's dead, so that only leaves a few possibilities. And so part of the object for her in this story is trying to figure out who has divulged all the dirt, who's outed her as this person who has been having all of these crazy experiences and been involved with the French royalty and in the circus and prostitute and all these other things. Which sounds great. Uh, tell us a little about the, the author, Alexander Cheese, not a, not a familiar name. Cheese, interesting. He is a Korean, well, mixed Korean-American um, long-time New England on one side of the family, Korean on the other. He's um, He's been teaching for a long time. His first novel, Edinburgh, was very successful, very acclaimed. And so he's just been kind of keeping a, not exactly a low profile, because this is the kind of book that gets reviewed in the New Yorker and the New York Times. But 
he's talented and not prolific. So if people aren't familiar with him, it's just because he doesn't write books very often. So we've been talking about The Queen of the Night by Alexander Chee. We're going to go on now to talk about our classic, and this week's classic is The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, one of the great classics of science fiction. And this appeared in the 1880s, and uh, probably most people know the story. It's about a, a guy who invents a machine, and um, he can g- go around in time, and uh, he actually travels to the far future to see how the human race has evolved, has lots of dramatic adventures, and, uh, and comes back in time for dinner which he enjoys with his uh, while telling stories of his travels. It's a real it's a real classic Victorian book, isn't it? It really is. There's a lot about it that in some ways it's so 19th century with everything that goes along with that. For example, when you're reading it, he doesn't name most of his characters. The time traveler is only known as the time traveler. And then this is it's a frame story, so it's told from the standpoint of somebody who was there in one of these dinner gatherings and things where the time traveler is you know recounting the tales of his adventures and showing off the the prototype machine so there's the 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 medical man so like one of them is a doctor and then one of the men at the gathering is a local mayor and and an editor right so only one or two people get names and that reminds me of some of the other writers from then and the language is very 19th century we're pronouncing great truths and kind of speechifying in a way that doesn't really match the way people talk anymore so like if you're reading the book you kind of have to overlook a little bit of that and just press on it actually does get better but at the beginning it does really seem like there's a lot of 19th century bloviation going on uh, true enough, and uh, and also it seems like a, almost a parody of a science fiction uh, story, except it isn't, of course, because, of course, this, this actually set the tone. So what happens is our dinner guests arrive, and they find a note saying, um, uh, I've just popped out to another century, you know, start dinner without me at seven, and uh, I'll come back if I can. And then uh, he, he then appears all sort of disheveled, having had this amazing adventure in the future. And, uh, of course, being Victorian, he says, uh, you know, I can't tell you about it nice now. I need to go and wash and clean, dress for dinner. And he goes off and dresses for dinner, and then he comes back and, and tells his amazing story. One of the nice things about it, though, is that not only is it great original science fiction that, that triggered a gazillion other stories, um, but it's also, it's very political. I mean, H.G. Wells was a a very passionate socialist, and uh, he was brought up in very poor circumstances. His father was a shopkeeper and his mother was a a domestic servant. Um, So he was... So in all his books are all these uh, messages about how how the poor are mistreated by the rich, and uh, that gives a lot of of fire to the story, don't you think? It really does, yeah, because, like, if you look at it, the, the concept of the Eloi, the future people who were like the leisure class who have kind of shrunk down to pretty uselessness and they're all kind of lovely and they all kind of squeak at each other and they grow pretty flowers and eat fruit and they don't really have to work and then it turns out that the other species that is has evolved from human beings the morlocks prey upon them and are hunting them and you know this is a real comment on social class which it really is a, a big theme in all of his work 
I'm not sure. It's in this case, it's almost like capitalism gone badly wrong. Not unlike today's America, and um, yeah, it's it's definitely there in his work, and it's it's relevant today. But yes, it really is uh, relevant when you think of uh, of the, the Democrats in the, in, the, in in America as being um, as, as sort of you know intellectuals, the chattering classes. Uh, and then the, the 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 other sort, which are considered a bit more thuggish, and uh, the sort of fighting between the two sides, uh, very amusing for for modern readers, I think, to see that uh, prophesied so many years ago, are considered. <laughs> In any case, yeah, it's it, one other thing I think works really well about this book, and I think part of the reason that it was such an important book in its day and has remained such is. Uh, Wells was one of the first to really focus on the importance of suspension of disbelief. So the guests are really dubious, and the whole thing's framed in a way that it's questioned. It's not just thrown at you and presented as fact, where everybody accepts it, everybody buys it. Uh, I think that's important. And he, it, it wasn't that he's necessarily the first writer to come up with this, but he really handled it well, which isn't something you always see in books of that time. Another important point, which is often missed, is the fact that he was using real science. Uh, uh, the the uh, book came out shortly after a famous science book called What is the Fourth Dimension, in which a scientist posits that there are three dimensions of space and one of time. And uh, that, uh, that discovery was eventually uh, shown to be correct by Einstein a few years later. But between that scientific uh, book and Einstein's relativity. You have you have this novel, so um, he's a bit like Michael Crichton in that sense. He takes as, uh, an idea that's that's rich and fresh in science, and then he turns it into a really good best-selling story. Um, you know, so so it's very much uh, uh, a novel of its time uh, in that sense. Yeah, so science turned into good literature. Right, I agree. And I think also, despite what I said earlier about the sort of bloviation in it, and like at the beginning of the novel, the the, the narrator spends a kind of a long time explaining all of that, and it can be a bit dry. But then once you get to the point in the novel where the time traveler is actually telling a story and you find out what happened and you know he's gone 800,000 years in the future, then it gets really good. It's actually a compelling read. I, I didn't want to overlook that point. Yes. Uh, he was an interesting character himself because he he went through rather a large number of women, which he is did. which is curious yes. because he's so moralistic, and uh, you know he's he's uh, blowing the trumpet for socialism and morality and being good, but um, he he was married. He ran off with a student at first, and, and then he just sort of went through this string of women, you know, with his second wife's uh, full uh, knowledge. So rather complex, puzzling character. Well, we've been talking about The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, one of the great science fiction novels, arguably of all time. And this, I'm afraid, is the final edition in this series of Read All About It. So, for the time being, it's goodbye. I'm Nuri Vitacci. And I'm Marshall Moore. Mm-hmm.